Warning, this episode contains elements of violence, animal abuse, sexual assault, rape, murder, child molestation, necrophilia, and strangulation. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome, my pretties. Come in, have a seat, sip some tea. The Midwest Maidens of the Miscellaneous Macabre. Imagine, a son born too soon, kept away for the first month of his life, a worried, despondent mother feeling her connection atrophy. There is no solace or comfort when he comes home. He's an odd infant, content to stare blankly ahead, never laughing or crying very much. He grows into a troublesome toddler, both clingy and defiant. Now he's a young boy, watching his mother laugh and play with his younger siblings. She ignores him, for he is a strange child. He faults his mother for the lack of connection. Now here he is, in trouble at school for being a bully, again. She comes to his defense. He's surprised, but happy, basking in the warmth of her protection. But when he gets home, she scolds him, berating him for acting out all the time. He feels small, worthless. He notices that she gives him attention when he is ill, that she will take him to the doctor if he is hurt. She is his mother after all. He is always injured or ill, demanding her to take him, no one but her. This is no longer enough. He needs to see panic on her face. He hides under the house for hours, watching and giggling as his family worriedly searches for him. When he finally jumps out, he's laughing hysterically. It makes him feel good to make them worry. There are times when he really is hurt, like in third grade when he took a stone to the dome, sporting that knot for the rest of his life. Certainly wasn't the first hit to knock those janky screws loose, but still he carried on with the miscellaneous mischief, terror, and menace, the origin of this dark tale. Where once his mother would ignore him, now she would pay special attention to him, barely into school before she forces oral sex on him. He's hurt, confused. He lashes out even more running away only to slink back home, back to the emotional neglect and sexual abuse that now includes his aunt and his sister. He begins to start fires and to hurt animals, even trying to have sex with them. All the while, he's a ten-year-old boy, still wetting the bed and crying for his mother. The same mother who would shove foreign objects into his asshole. He hated her. He loved her. Fied for her. Rejected her. He ran away to Canada, forced home to witness the reveal of his father's secret Australian family. Mother is even more domineering now, no one is safe from her wrath. Everywhere he turns, there is abuse. He's either abusing someone or being abused by someone. Barely 14 and he's choked and raped by a stranger. It excites him. He wants to pay it forward, but hasn't got the courage. School isn't for him. 17 and ninth grade. What a waste of time. So he drops out. Now there's plenty of opportunity to ask for the stance with Johnny Law. Instead, he meets Sarah Chatterton. She's a lovely girl, willing to overlook those red flags displayed proudly. His parents and hers oppose the impending matrimony, but he won't let them be a nuisance to their nuptials, will he? Of course not. A young husband, a strange husband. It would be three months before he could muster the courage and erection to consummate the marriage to Sarah, and that was only after he found a job that he could hold longer than a month at a meat processing facility. He'd come home at night, stinking of old blood, chattering on excitedly to his new wife about how much he just loved gutting the pigs open, the exsanguination just tickling his fancy. He's an odd one. But she wasn't alarmed yet, just wary, though not enough to reject his seed. He's a father now, but not for long. One night, he's driving. A child throws a snowball at his car. The only logical thing for him to do is to chase down that child, burst through his door, and beat him bloody. Of course, only leaving through the splintered door as he realizes they're not alone in the home. He, of course, goes to jail. Once he returns home, wife files for divorce, and in full custody of the child, leaving him. He never sees them again. But that's not all he would do. On his tour of duty in Vietnam, 
he would lay claim to 39 combat kills. Not only did you take the lives of your enemies, but two lives of the innocent as well. Yes, two little Vietnamese girls that he would rape, murder, and eat. A monster is born, not a second too soon. Now, that's the story as told by Arthur John Shawcross. Much of that is unverified claims made by the monster himself. His family states that he was a strange kid, always a bully and in trouble, seeking attention, but otherwise had a normal childhood. It might not have been the warmest in regards to him, but it was certainly sans incest and abuse. If you're keen on your serial killer trivia, you've picked up on the McDonald triad, as demonstrated by Shawcross. Cruelty to animals, arson, and bedwetting. He is also known to be a charming liar, but he had to have been because he was some sort of Casanova. He was married four times and had a mistress. So let's still let's spill a little more tea on that. Ugh. It just sounds bad. <laughs> just saying. Girl, that's awful. Yeah. But like he also does awful shit. Kind of groomed, I guess, to do awful shit. This is a fucking roller coaster of a case. There are a lot of verified claims to that. You know, that he would abuse animals. That's definitely one. That he was a bedwetter. That he got in trouble for starting fires and bullying children at school. And being bullied. That he took many hits to the head growing up. So. I mean, not setting you up for the best there. No. I don't, you know. Nature, nurture, what's going on here. We'll learn a little bit more as we delve into that uh, later on. I guess we'll get into the meat of it, huh? Arthur There's Shaw- more meat. There's, I think there should be less meat. Less meat? No, that's barely the beginning. Like, we're not, he's not even 21 yet. <sighs> this is all by the time he's 19 or so. The evening that he beat the boy was in 1969, a snowy night. Arthur Shawcross really served in the Vietnam War. He really was married to Sarah, and he did have a son on the way. So there is a small sliver of truth to his buffet of bullshit. Buffet of bullshit. That's great. <laughs> Do I? I'm so clever. Buffets? Mm. But with some bullshit? But the story is not scrumptious. Bullshit adds to the tea. Let's spill the tea. Let's get a little more in depth. One evening in 1969, while driving, a teen boy threw a snowball at Arthur's car. Of course, the only rational response to this disrespectful behavior was to chase the boy to his home crash through the door, and beat him bloody. That's the only only, only way to do it, I guess. What else could you do? That's, I do that on a Tuesday. I mean, of course. Sarah was none too happy with this. She filed for divorce and demanded full custody without visitation as soon as Arthur was released from prison. He never saw them again. Wonder why. Because he was not a very good role <laughs> model. Not at all. Let's fast forward a little bit. He marries Linda Neary and is drafted into the service where he claims it was a wild ride, but that the army claims was pretty uneventful. The army was like, you're not special, honey. You never saw combat. <laughs> you were literally a supply kirk. You're like, fine. Your tour of duty was ordering <laughs> toilet paper. You're fine. You're good. Do you're we good, have girly. enough shaving cream? But in the service, he had 39 combat kills. Unverified. And he raped, strangled, and ate two Vietnamese little girls. Yes, that's that, those are his wild fantasies. Did he do them? No, I don't think so. Did he want to do them? Um, probably. He's sick and fucking twisted. 
After he was discharged from the service, Arthur came home a different man. He'd always been rude and bullish, but now he had little to no inhibitions. He and Linda were only married for a short time, Linda experiencing Arthur's intensifying strange behavior. Notably, he had began starting fires. After he was discharged from the service, Arthur came home a different man. He'd always been rude and bullish, but now he had little to no inhibitions. They were only married for a short time, he and Linda. And Linda experiencing Arthur's intensifying strange behavior, notably that he had began starting fires. An army psychiatrist would tell her that Shawcross derived sexual gratification from starting the fires. It wasn't long before they were pregnant, and even sooner than that, that Arthur beat her so badly she was hospitalized and miscarried the child. Trash! Absolute garbage. We have a trash alert, everyone. Please send the truck. Please send the truck. It's 4 a.m. and I need you to pick up my bins. <laughs> you are a minute late and that is unacceptable. I caught you on camera. Be on time. <laughs> Though he would try to reconcile, she never would see him again. This guy's, this guy's so fucking ridiculous. God damn. I'm serious. He would later be incarcerated for arson and burglary, gaining an early release for aiding a police officer in a prison riot. However, they really should have just kept his ugly ass because in the May of 1972, Arthur was out fishing along the river when he spotted a boy at the tender age of 10 with blonde hair. Arthur likes blondes, you see, so he was unable to get the tow-headed boy out of his mind. He sought him out to go fishing with him. The boy's mother protests. I wonder why. (laughs) Not with that freak, she says. He's the buffoon that spanked that little boy and shoved grass in his pants. You stay away from that man, Jackie. Arthur actually did this to another local boy. He spanked him for whatever reason and then shoved grass in his pants. And this will not be the last time he shoves grass somewhere that doesn't belong. Jack does try to listen. He's a good boy, minding his business, playing with his younger friend, Perry. They're in the woods enjoying their youth when Shawcross happens upon them. Charmer that he ever was, he convinced Jack and Perry to go fishing with him. Arthur would walk hand in hand with Perry, Jack keeping a steady pace ahead. Arthur tries to coax him back, to let him catch up, but Jack continues his steady pace. Suddenly, Perry is in the air above Arthur's head, perilously close to being thrown over a bridge if Jack doesn't slow down. Jack obliges, and Arthur sets down Perry. The terrified lad runs to safety. Jack tries to flee after him, but he's no match for Arthur. The boy is stripped naked, chased down through the woods, raped, and murdered. Even that was not the end to this boy's tragedy. He would lay, sparsely covered with twigs and leaves, until the cold, bitter autumn of 1972. It would be four months before he was discovered, his penis bitten off, and that was only after... I know, dude! Sorry, you just (laughs) dropped that like it was nothing! Whoa! What the, the benefits of rehearsing your words come out better, smoother, but then you really lay down something like that. Yeah, his penis had been bitten off. What the fuck? Who the fuck? He was only found after Arthur's second victim was found. God damn, poor so, little kid, man. Yes. Ah, I wanna baby. go I wanna go back to Jack Owen Blake. Arthur's first murder victim. So Later on in one of his confessions or interviews, he does admit to returning to the scene of the crime to rape the corpse. Oh, whoa. Yeah. He's a fucking necrophiliac on top of all the other shit. 
I was not expecting you to say that. If I'm not mistaken, there's not a dildo on the roof. <laughs> Love you, Cheyenne. What's Ooh. up, girl? Karen Ann Hill was eight years old when she was found in the wrong place at the wrong time. Arthur Shawcross would see her playing outside and simply couldn't help himself. He needed that power over another life to satiate his need. Karen was abducted, raped, and murdered. Ew. She was, yeah, ew. Again, like this motherfucker. Sorry, just it's just gross. I gotta, I gotta announce every time it's ew. It is. It's even grosser because she was found with mud and grass stuffed into her mouth and nose. What's with the mud and grass, bro? Likely so no one would hear her cries for help. Because you know she was. Oh, poor baby. Yes. Arthur was a suspect in Jack Blake's disappearance from the very beginning. He was also seen in the vicinity of the bridge where Karen Hill's body would be found. With police knowing the history of his run-in with the local children, they picked him up for a few questions. Shawcross immediately confessed to both murders, revealing that he had returned to the scene of Karen's murder to have ice cream and reminisce. Mm -hmm. Initially, Shawcross would only admit to hitting Jack over the head with a rock because he was angry with the boy. He denied knowing why the boy was naked or why there was obvious evidence of rape and mutilation to the corpse. He was arrested for both murders, but sadly was only convicted for one. Due to lack of evidence in Jack's case, they couldn't pin the murder on Shawcross, even with his confession. What? Mm-hmm. How the fuck? The body was just too degraded. It's 19... 19- but he confessed to it? He confessed to it, but it's 1972. They don't have the means to, you know, use forensic evidence. They don't have DNA, like, going on right now. Trash. Throw him in the whole ass dumpster. I mean, you really should. And unfortunately, he did not get thrown in the dumpster. He should have. He should have. He should have. <laughs> he should have. With the defense knowing that the prosecution's hands were tied, they offered a plea bargain for manslaughter one with a sentence of 25 years, and that wasn't even the worst they could do. Arthur would spend time in prison fighting for his life. Eventually, he would learn how to figure out how to survive and manipulate his way through prison life. He would be evaluated by psychologists, and it was pretty obvious that he had antisocial personality disorder, among other things, I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, probably. Prefrontal cortex is what is responsible for, like, decision-making and impulse control. Yeah. And your temporal lobe is responsible for, like, digesting auditory and, like, visual stimuli and whatnot. So having a cyst on that could fuck, like, give you auditory hallucinations, which Mm. Arthur will say in later interviews that he had a a voice telling him to murder as he went on. Okay. In some interviews, he would also speak in his mother's voice. So, who knows with this guy. (laughs) Sounds still fucked up. Yeah, he's certainly something else. Fifteen years into his 25-year sentence, he would have his eighth parole hearing. He was able to parrot all of the right answers to the parole board, even though one officer at the hearing would be quoted to say, this writer considered this, this man to possibly be the most dangerous individual to be released to this community for many years. And he was right. But Arthur Shawcross was a model prisoner, so they let him out anyway. Let's recap. He raped, oh. killed, and mutilated two children. And one of these children was Jack. 
Yeah. As I said, Sean Cross continued to rape the boy's corpse. But he was a model prisoner, so after only serving 15 years of his 25 sentence, he was released into Bingham, New York, and promptly chased out because he was a child rapist murderer. So the cops moved him to Delhi, New York, which is a blessed day, where his, it was a blessed day because his girlfriend, that was his prison pen pal, mm-hmm. lived in Delhi, New York. So he would move in with Rose Whaley, but they wouldn't be there for long as Arthur was chased once more out of town. And this time, the cops paid for Rose to move with him. So woohoo, he could stay with his girlfriend. Since they didn't want to move Shawcross again, they decided to have his record seals when they moved him to Rochester, New York. Wait, what? What? Yeah. He kept getting chased out of town. <clears throat> they were tired of relocating him, so they sealed his police records. Okay, I guess. At some point, Rose left his rotten ass, too. Though he was never alone for too long, soon he would be married to Penny Sherbino, and all the while, he would be ca- carrying on with his mistress, Clara Neal. A wife and a mistress and paying for sex works, and paying for sex work, but he was still bored. So he decided to get a hobby, and it was not a very good one. He should not be allowed to have a hobby. He should have been left in jail. Yeah, no shit. Like even getting 25 years for the rape and murder of two children. I'm sorry. We should just... I have things that I say we should just... But we'll go into March 1988, when the remains of Dorothy Blackburn would be found by the Genesee River. She was strangled with bite marks on her groin. Arthur would later say that this was in retaliation to her biting his penis first. Well? Hard hard enough to draw blood. Good, fucker. What? He should just really keep his fucking penis to himself. I... Good job. Like, he had a, a weird fucking fascination with oral sex. God damn. Like, and... Oh, Keep it, my I dick! I don't want to give any spoilers there. away, so... Yeah. Oh. Deep bite marks on her groin. And he was a liar, so who knows who bit who first. We'll never figure that part out. Being a prostitute in the 1980s was an unlucky draw. The police department didn't put much effort into yet another murdered sex worker. She was doomed to be just another unsolved murder. It would be a year before there was any movement on her case. And that was after September 9th, 1989, Anna Stephan was found in much the same way as Dorothy Blackburn, but farther away from the original dump site. So, obviously, there was no connection. Yeah. Don't really need to look into these strangled sex workers. Oh, that's what the police weren't drawing a connection to them? No. They weren't putting much effort into them at all. Cause it oh, was, because, of course, they're sex They workers. were the vulnerable, yeah. God, I hate when they do that. It was, I mean... Think of all of the active serial killers from back the day. It was an awful time. They just out there make a living. It was awful. Especially on October 21st in 1989, when Dorothy Keeler, who was not Arthur's standard target, she was an older, homeless woman. She was discovered just six days before Patricia Ives. Both women were asphyxiated in a similar manner. At this point, the media finally took an interest in these cases, dubbing the proposed serial killer 
Genesee River Killer. How apropos, right? Strangled woman found by the Genesee River. There must be a killer. Yeah. Now that the media had taken an interest, the cops have also perked back up. Collaring a serial killer would really make their career. So they set out to canvas the known red light districts, so to say, to ask the working girls some questions. There were no good leads, the best being some of the women saying that there was one kind of weird guy named Mike Joe Mitch. But he wasn't a violent client, just a little odd. I apologize if you hear the fireworks going off in the background. They're just so excited for our podcast, episode three. Because I am not going to edit that out. I don't really hear a whole lot of it. It should be all right. Motorcycles, fireworks, it's a party. It's a party in the Mm. edit office. (laughs) Indeed. I just listen to the podcast through and then I stop when I'm going to edit something. Highlight it, click, delete, continue. It's like it never happened. The cops needlessly warned the working girls to be careful, to not work alone, and to keep an eye out for any strange behavior on any of the Johns. Many of the girls followed such guidance, but not all were so wise or capable. The police checked police records of people in the surrounding neighborhoods, but nothing worthwhile came of it. Of course, this was because Shawcross's records were sealed. It wasn't even a blip on their radar. Thanksgiving 1989, the mutilated remains of June Stott would be found. She was anally mutilated, strangled. Gross. Sorry. (laughs) The killings were no closer to an end, indicating to the police that the murderer was familiar to the girls. Surprise, surprise. Eventually, the local police department realized they were out of their depth and called in the FBI for assistance. They sent out profilers who who dissected some of the cases and put them into subgroups, method, and position. This enabled them to create a profile of a white male in his mid to late 30s, large and strong, who had a connection to his victims, likely has a past criminal history, as the lack of sexual assault on the victims led them to believe that he was possibly sexually dysfunctional, seeking gratification and hurting his victims after they were dead. They believed that the killer would return to the scene of the crimes to mutilate the corpses. He's just gross. Like, I'm just going I'm sorry I keep saying it, but... It's not even that you would, you know, strangle and murder them and cut up the corpses afterwards. Some of his... I don't know how to speak. Some of his victims he would return to and cut them open (sighs) so that he could cut out their vaginas and eat them. That is verified. The mutilation of June Stott showed the killer was becoming more comfortable being around dead bodies, finding it easier to handle them and harm them. He was completely able to remove the humanity from his victims, simply using them as a means to satiate his bloodlust. The Rochester Police Department set back to the streets with new eyes and ears. They interviewed the working girls again, coming coming across Elizabeth Gibson. She would give them the name Mitch a man who had a hard time achieving and maintaining an erection who would sometimes get a little rough. Great, we have a suspect. But who the hell is Mitch? On December 31st, 1989, an ID was found in a discarded pair of jeans. They belonged to Felicia Stevens. 
This prompted the police to issue a helicopter and begin a search two days later, to begin an aerial search two days later of the Genesee River area. They saw what appeared to be a frozen corpse in the prone position sticking out of the ice on the river. And don't you know, they were right. But it wasn't Felicia. It was the icy remains of June Cicero. She was practically sawed in half. It was terrible. These poor women. Whilst in the air, they also spotted a man parked on a nearby bridge, sitting in a white van. Whether he was eating lunch or masturbating to the memories of his recent murders is still up for debate. Ground Patrol was alerted to Bolo for a lid to mate 30s white male in a white cargo van. At some point around this time, the police had a photo of Shaw Cross and showed the working girls who confirmed him to be Mitch. Good. So now we have a connection. January 5, 1990, the police were able to locate and apprehend Arthur Shawcross. He provided that he was driving a van registered to his girlfriend without a license. He also generously revealed that he'd previously been to prison for manslaughter. He would say no more than that until the police interviewed his mistress, Clara Neal. Turns out she was wearing a piece of jewelry that belonged to June Cicero. They immediately went back to Arthur and said they would implicate Clara as an accessory to the murder if he didn't confess. This led to an 80-page confession letter. He admitted to the known murders and provided details on the murders of Maria Welsh and Diane Trippi. This Weasley excuse for a human would find any excuse to give, even citing that he had the voice inside his head telling him to kill women. Sometimes it was even his mother's voice, which he would imitate on his interviews, like I said earlier. Obviously, this fuck is insane, but he's completely culpable. He knew what he was doing was wrong, and he didn't care. Did they do, like, a psyche that on him? Um, yeah, there were plenty of them. And he was saying he had an antisocial personality disorder. Like I said, later it was revealed that he had scarring and cysts and all of that on his brain. <clears throat> but he knew what he would, was doing was wrong. Right, okay. Like, he wasn't actually insane. I mean, he was insane. He was cutting out vaginas. Yeah, well... I can't really, I mean, you can't really call that insane. In November 1990, the media was a circus. Shawcross was on trial for 10 murders in Monroe County, New York. The 11th, Elizabeth Gibson, would be postponed and held in Wayne County following the wrap of the first trial. Of course, the defense team tried to plead the insanity defense, citing mitigating factors such as childhood trauma, PTSD from the war, a cyst on his temporal lobe, and scarring on his prefrontal cortex. That he had Jacob's syndrome, which is when a man has XYY, so he has an extra Y chromosome. Okay. It can possibly be linked to enhanced aggression among among other side effects, but it doesn't make you want to kill people. Okay. It's it's rather rare, but it's not like oh we've never seen it before. Right. It's more more common than that. Right. Perhaps not at that time was it too well established, you know, but still. There's no doubt that much of this played a significant part in his fucked up way of thinking, but the bottom line is he knew murdering women was not okay, that he was fucking weird. He was declared sane and guilty. Like, no shit, thank you. 
He was sentenced to 25 years for each account, totaling 250 years of imprisonment to be served consecutively. He was given another 25 years in Wayne County for Elizabeth Gibson. He would be held at the the Sullivan Correctional Facility in New York State. In November 2008, he would complain of a pain in his legs, dying of a heart attack, and not long after being taken to the medical ward. Die, bitch, die. I mean, what? Rest in pieces, motherfucker. I don't want you to rest at all. (laughs) Suffer. As all of the victims did. Yeah, the victims. As all of the victims did. Thirteen of them. There's a monster by the river. No shit. So his leg hurts. What else? His leg hurts. He goes to med bay and fucking has a heart attack. Oh, that sucks. It was like 65, 67. Hmm. So it was Jack Blake, his very first victim. Karen Ann Hill. Two children that he did not serve nearly enough time for. There was no justice in that. March 1988. Dorothy Blackburn. September 1989. Anna Stephan. October 1989, Dorothy Keeler and Patricia Ives. November 1989, June Stock. December 1989, Felicia Stevens. January 1990, June Cicero. Late 1989, Maria Welsh. Late 1989, Diane Trippi. The victims of the Genesee River Killer. May they rest in peace. Them. Fuck. Fuck. Shawcross. That Fuck piece that of shit. Man. Don't forget to visit us on Instagram at don't you know pod or send us an email at don't you know pod at outlook.com. Make sure you head to our website, don't you know pod.com. Good night and don't forget to lock your doors. Mm-hmm.